You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation and law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. So I want to welcome everyone to uh, the next installment of Wiley Connected. I'm David Gross, a partner at Wiley Ryan, and with me is Kathy Kirby, who is a partner of mine at Wiley, who is also the co-chair of our TMT practice. And we're thrilled today to be able to welcome uh, Commissioner Mike O'Reilly to our podcast. Really needs no introduction. He has really been uh, an extraordinary uh, voice for reason and deregulation and for um, many, many constituents at the FCC now for a good number of years. And I want to begin, Commissioner, by congratulating you on the president's uh, nominating you for an additional term. We think that is a terrific thing, and we hope that that uh, nomination process once again goes very, very smoothly. Well, thank you so very much and much appreciated. And my thanks to the president for making that selection. Uh, We thought we might uh, start off with a really hard question for you. How are you holding up during this uh, COVID uh, pandemic? How are you handling the family and being at home so much? Well, that's a, you know, you you touched on in the end, you know, the family considerations are more difficult than the work conditions. I can get my work done, but I, I, we don't have childcare at the moment and my wife has got an active job. And so it is put an extra responsibility on us. And at any given moment, my daughter may jump in our, jump in my lap and into the conversation and there's not much I can do about it. So it's it's all good, but it, it it's it's stressful. We've been together almost six weeks now and not much breaks, but it's loving. But many other people have much uh, harder circumstances. And uh, I agree with those that have lost their lives during this time. So I appreciate that everyone is going through similar uh, circumstances and we'll get through this the best we can. Yeah, I had an opportunity to be on a, uh, a conference on Friday with the chairman and he was pointing out uh, that you all uh, decided to start working remotely really before almost anybody else in the federal government. What led to that sort of decision? Well, in fairness, the chairman has been leading the agency actively, and I've had to, and appropriately, I believe, step back a little bit on a lot of these mechanical pieces and how the commission is going to operate, um, not the policy side, but on the mechanic side, because during a crisis situation, I've learned this in my past life, you need to have a strong voice and there can't be too many people trying to steer the ship. And so in this instance, I've you know, step back a little bit. And the early on, the chairman and his team indicated that they wanted to move in a very cautious direction uh, as it relates to protecting the, those that, that come to the commission and also those that work at the commission. And I appreciated that. I must have been, I took, I got there a week early because our daycare uh, closed. And so I've been there an extra week. So, but I appreciate the, the chairman's leadership on, on the different pieces that, that have gone forward in the, in the many weeks uh, since then. I have to say, Commissioner, based on my experience with the Commission staff, the work from home has been operating quite seamlessly, and everybody is highly responsive and conducting business maybe not exactly as usual, but they they are most certainly moving forward and uh, well done. Yeah, the staff deserves credit and and, and deservedly so. And and they're they've been you know they are professionals and are incredibly valuable uh, you know federal workers and we appreciate all that they do. It's not so not a surprise that they're able to execute during this time. I think it does provide a lot of lessons 
going forward as it relates to at some point we're going to get to our new building um, and telework was going to be more of a component of that we believe and so i think everyone's getting good practice uh, for that part i thought maybe uh, one of the first real questions if you wouldn't mind is uh, outlining for our listeners some of the more significant of the fcc decisions with regard to uh, this pandemic i have been impressed i've been working uh, with the FCC now for probably close to 40 years, maybe even more than 40 years. And I've never seen anything quite like this. The proactive responsiveness, um, the uniformity, all five commissioners so often working clearly very closely together to get out items is very, very impressive. Maybe you could just walk us through what you think some of the major initiatives that the commission has done for the American people. Well, I think there's there's two categories. One is the flexibility that the chairman and his team recognized early from a number of petitions that are put before us to open up different spectrum bands that one provider wasn't using fully and another could use instantaneous to expand capacity and maintain important speeds for wireless services. I think that's incredibly valuable and making sure that people had connections, broadband services during this time. And that's much appreciated and provide us a path going forward. The second category is something that you, you highlighted where we've moved extra fast on dealing with flexibility as it relates to deadlines and timing um, and, and obligations, whether they're in the commission rules or elsewise, how do we move the ball up the hill as fast as possible so the providers can continue to provide service to the American people seamlessly? And so I think the two categories working hand in hand and the chairman's leadership have been uh, astronomical. That's terrific. Um, are there particular things, obviously there's been a lot of focus on um, the fact that not all Americans are connected, uh, at least not all connected to broadband in the way that I think everyone would like to see. Uh, that's become highlighted also with distance learning, telehealth, and things of that nature. Um, how do you see this evolving over time from an FCC perspective? Well, look, this has been a high priority of this commission and even the last commission. I've been working on these issues intently at the commission for seven years, but even in my time on Capitol Hill from before that, we want the American people to have broadband if they so choose. We want access to be available. It's a hard project to get build out in some of the harder, more difficult areas and more expensive areas. But we're working, we're shrinking that the area of unserved population. It takes a number of years to do so, but we're continuing to, to work on it because we recognize the benefits of broadband. We don't have to, to, to convince anyone what broadband can bring. And we're trying to figure out how can we best make that happen. We've, we've adjusted our subsidy mechanisms to entice providers to serve different areas, different ways with different technologies. And we're really working hard to make that happen. Now, I think the, the pandemic that we're going through COVID-19 brings you know even more heightened attention to this issue. And I'm leery to deal with things that um, are, you know, people say, oh, this is an emergency. We have to do it this way now. And I say, okay, Please, first, let's start from our authority. Do we have authority in the law to act? And that's, you know, that seems, sounds trite sometimes, I must admit, but that's where, you know, how I'm supposed to operate as a, as a regulator. My past background comes from a universe where we worked on statutes on behalf of members and we expected the regulators to follow them. And so if they've made a decision one way or the other on certain pieces, I expect to, to follow what Congress has written. There are certainly times um, that, that these can be, you know, can be explored. 
for changes. And that's what I think Congress is doing. There are a number of different proposals have been put forward. Could we do certain things? And I think those are all before Congress uh, in, in the media to, to determine if we should change the law or expand it or expand money, or they want to put public dollars um, you know, to, to go into the programs. Those are all being uh, debated as we currently speak. But the goal of getting broadband to every American is the highest one of the highest priorities of the agency. And we're working really hard to make that happen. Do you see that receptiveness on the Hill and others to spending taxpayer money perhaps to do these things maybe heightened now that that gap seems to be so much in, in people's minds? You know, I think that's being explored upon and they've got a lot of different trade-offs. I've provided a lot of advice over the years to, to members of Congress and they have a lot of trade-offs to determine where best to spend public dollars. And so I don't know where this is eventually going to land and I don't want to get ahead of them. Uh, on whether they decide to go this way or that way. There are different there are different proposals that have been put forward and we'll see if they make the cut. Um, some of them are longer projects that, that you know, I, I, for instance, I'm, 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 I've been a proponent of if, if the government, if the federal government is going to put adder, extra taxpayer dollars into broadband build out, that it consider the FCC mechanisms, the subsidy mechanisms as a way to distribute the funds. That hasn't completely won the day yet, uh, but I think I'm winning over converts as we speak. Um, there are other federal programs that compete with us, and we want to make sure that we don't have overbuilding, that we don't have a wasted dollars. And we work really hard to make sure that the, the ratepayer dollars that are paid that go into the system today are stretched as far as possible and used most efficiently. And so we would, I would want any dollars that came from the taxpayers to be used the same way. That hasn't exactly been this been how it operated in the past. We have experiences in the in, in, in different years. I don't want to go down to that, that, that path too much, but we have experience where the dollars weren't used efficiently. And that's, that's problematic from my viewpoint because you only have so much money um, and you have so much need. Right now, uh, you know, the numbers and, and measurements can be, you know, are, are debatable and our, our measurements are certainly problematic, but at minimum, I can say that, you know, the last data that we saw, 8.3 million Americans don't have 10-1 today. Don't have 10-1, not 25-3, 10-1. And at 25-3, we're talking 18 million. And that's a really huge population that we're trying to you know, resolve um, and then acknowledge that we know those numbers are higher because our, our, our measuring and counting process is, uh, is less, less to be desired. There's always been a lot of tension between broadband adequacy with regard to wireline versus wireless. Is part of your thinking that 5G will actually be a difference maker in terms of really narrowing that uh, distinction? Oh, absolutely. I believe 5G provides a full-on broadband opportunity for the American public. I've been arguing for a while, a long while now, that wireless is a substitute to wireline. It doesn't do everything. It doesn't fulfill every uh, experience that wireline does today. But for the consumer, and if you talk to users, they will use wireless because of its mobility over wireline opportunities. And so there's trade-offs to everything you do and getting broadband in some form or fashion is what their desire is to be had. Um, and so I, I think the technology, um, our job is to be as technology neutral as possible. Uh, and we wanna make sure uh, that the dollars are stretched as further as possible. And so in those places where it's hardest to reach, wireless is going to be a path. You know, one of the things that uh, that you all have been very, very aggressive on is obviously getting more broadband spectrum 
out for 5G. And uh, you just voted, I guess, an item today on Legato that's part of that. I think that was a 5 nothing decision. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about your vision about the importance of uh, mid-band spectrum. Well, I recognized a number of years. I even I worked with um, former chairman Tom Wheeler on high-band spectrum, millimeter wave spectrum, and got a number of bands into the pipeline. A lot of those have been auctioned off since. And so I, I appreciate that, that we got to that point. Um, but a couple of years ago, I, you know, I had an international conference and, and a couple other conversations, and they highlighted the need for mid-band spectrum. So I've been working on this for a good four or five years. Um, to get mid-band spectrum into the United States, into our carriers' hands. And that's not an easy task. Mid-band is, is highly populated today. Um, so that means you have to take it from somebody else. You have to reallocate it from somebody, someone else, some other user today. Um, and that, that that's incredibly difficult. And we worked really hard on different pieces, whether it be C-band or you mentioned Legato. Some people would say it's 5G. Some people say it's not. But we'll find out what it can be used for. Um, if this path goes forward, as, as you indicated, the vote. And there's so many other pieces um, in that pipeline. But what I've been highlighting is there's two things. We need even more spectrum going forward, even more uh, spectrum for licensed users. Uh, and that means things like 3.1 to 3.55. It means other bands that are not identified yet that, I, that I've been working on that I want to to, to gum up their works or, or, or get all the opposition worked up yet. Um, it also means a very... High, uh, high effort on unlicensed spectrum. And that's where you see this commission being incredibly aggressive on things that I'm just so appreciative that we've gotten to the point. Six gigahertz and 5.9 gigahertz, two important bands for an unlicensed portfolio that I've spent um, my career at the commission on. On that one, how quickly do you think we'll start to see uh, products out there so that people like uh, us can start using uh, you know, six gigahertz uh, Wi-Fi and the like? Well, we've got an item this month to uh, to vote on that matter, and if, assuming that it goes successful, which I think it will, um, based on my conversations, um, I'm, I'm really pleased with what it looks like, and 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 I'm optimistic that by Christmas we'll have you know products that are offering you know Wi-Fi 6E um, you know to consumers in one form or fashion. We'll see if the things get you know the there's always a challenge in our world that something always gets challenged. That's okay. Uh, you know, give, give some lawyers some, some, some work. That's always good. Uh, but I think that this really does uh, have a chance to, to really change the dynamics for the American consumer, uh, the experience on, in six gigahertz. And you combine that with 5.9, which we can put in the pipeline immediately. We actually are using it today. That's one of the things you maybe should have led with. The chairman waived some of the rules to allow a number of uh, wireless providers to use 5.9 on an unlicensed basis to bring service to the American people. We already knew that 5.9 was going to be valuable for this purpose, and now we actually are using it, and I can't wait until we fully open it up for that, that, that purpose. Terrific. Kathy? Commissioner, I just wanted to uh, chat about broadcasters for a few minutes. You've always been a great friend to broadcasters, and under different circumstances, we'd be visiting out at the NAB show in Vegas today. But I think what we're witnessing now is broadcasters doing what they do best in times of crisis. So they're disseminating critical information and serving as lifelines to their local communities, while at the same time, they're facing the incredible challenges of keeping their employees safe and being squeezed by a steep decline in advertising revenue. 
the commission has been terrific about doing some things to help broadcasters during this pandemic. Um, could you talk a little bit about what the FCC is doing to help them? So uh, the answer is that I'm not surprised at all the benefits that broadcasters have brought forward in this time of need. Uh, nobody, and I've spoken to time and time again, nobody um, does as well as broadcasters in terms of, you know, providing information that, that the, the listeners need or viewers need that provides the uplifting in terms of the programming that's valuable to them, that provides the, um, the, the, the circumstances to change uh, communities and rise above. No one's a better fundraiser during this time. Than, than broadcasters. And so I applaud everything that they do. I wish too that we were in Las Vegas. I haven't even looked to see what the weather's like, uh, but I, I wish we weren't under these circumstances today. I wish we were under normal uh, no, no more operations. Um, but I do acknowledge that broadcasters are facing financial difficulties going forward, very significant uh, financial uh, difficulties going forward. And I don't know exactly how to resolve some of those things uh, we're going to see some, you know, probably going to see some contraction within the industry. We have to acknowledge that our media ownership rules don't align very well uh, with today's marketplace. And we're going to have to reconcile those with what's happening uh, to broadcasters today. That means, you know, not, not not trying to force things to happen, but just recognizing how the market is changing. And this will change things. Um, and we're going to have to be, you know, mindful of that. Well, you anticipated my next question, of course. <laughs> because on Friday, the FCC and the DOJ filed a cert petition with the Supreme Court asking the court to review the Third Circuit's decision vacating relaxation of certain of the FCC's media ownership rules. And as we know well, uh, Commissioner, and as you alluded to in your fine statement issued today, we've kind of been on a seemingly endless merry-go-round uh, before the Third Circuit for the past 17 years. <laughs> as the same three judge panelists found fault with respect to the commission's efforts to align its media ownership rules with these dramatic changes in the marketplace. And I agree with you, and I think those changes are going to be even more marked uh, as we emerge from this pandemic. Do you have any thoughts on whether the Supreme Court will take the case and uh, what the next steps at the FCC might be? Well, I don't have a, a good uh, read on the Supreme Court. I had to give that up a couple of years ago. I, I used to be pretty good at it. And, and then I uh, guessed a couple of cases wrong and, and I've not been very successful since then. So it's, it's, it's hard to judge where a court may go. I'd like to believe they would pick up this case. I did see one of the um, uh, opponents to, to, to media reform argue that there isn't uh, differences among circuits. And you're like, there's no differences among circuits because we haven't allowed any other circuits to review the case. It's been stuck in the third circuit uh, on this perpetual uh, mind, you know, numbing uh, process for, as you highlighted, 17 plus years. Um, and we can't seem to get out of it. And so uh, no matter what we have done, even the most benign things that, you know, Chairman Wheeler did or others before him, uh, were, were sent back, even if the court agreed, they would send them back. And they're asking what they're asking for. And this, this, in my opinion, is is both one constitutionally questionable uh, and two not not sustainable. Um, and I'm hopeful, of course, very ho hopeful that the court will take this up and provide some guidance. And if if I'm wrong in the court, you know, the Supreme Court rules us that different, then we'll have to deal with it. And then we can have an argument going to the to the Congress to say change the statute because it's not working. We've done everything we possibly can to 
I believe the chairman has been leading the effort to try and increase uh, participation by un, you know those that are not represented today. We created an incubator program on the radio side. I pushed and I was hopeful and I think we're going to get at some point if we ever get it operational. We'll see one on the television side. And so I think those are very important steps, but they don't go forward if, you can't, if we just get stuck in the same molasses. And those that don't want change have won just by the status quo, by the court just remanding it rather than striking down this piece and letting the other pieces go, have won uh, they, they we're stuck in the 19, you know, I wouldn't even say it's a 96 uh, when these when these rules are last changed by statute uh, fully. Um, I, I, you know, I, we're in the 70s. We're in, you know, some of these go back to the 50s. You can't own a newspaper and a radio station in the same market. Hard to believe. Can, can you believe? I mean, how many newspapers have to fail? How many? I, I've been arguing that we'll get to four newspapers with profits and then everyone else will collapse before we can change the rule. This is it's insane. Well, thank you for those views, Commissioner, which uh, are absolutely consistent with mine. David? <laughs> right. Commissioner, one of the areas, one of the many areas you've been a real leader for the FCC has been internationally. Uh, it's really been terrific. Let me start with uh, a sort of general question, which is, uh, this is a global pandemic. Um, there are lessons to be learned here. There are lessons to be learned internationally. Uh, as you look globally, uh, are there lessons that you think that the rest of the world might learn from your experiences here in the United States in terms of the importance of broadband, investments in new technologies, the use of satellites, uh, and the like? Uh, and similarly, are there things that you are looking internationally to try to, uh, to learn from and to apply here in the United States? Well, I think it's a little early to do lessons learned, but there have been things that have piqued my interest that I think we want to explore uh, as the days and months go ahead. It does, it's not lost on me that for many years we've had a debate over a number of different regulations and whether they should apply in the United States because they applied elsewhere. In many instances I've, I've disagreed and I fought those regulations. And it's not just net neutrality. It was previous. It was network sharing. And this is a 20-year fight that we've been having. Um, and when I would go and travel internationally, we've, we've had the opportunity to join in a number of conferences. And you would talk to Europeans or African nations and the, the regulators from there, they would say, we don't have investment going into our networks. We have broad competition at the network level, but it's all reseller um, and people aren't making any money and there is no heightened edge provider. There is nothing in our country. And so it becomes, you know, a very static universe you're fighting over marketing plans basically and then the margins are tiny and that doesn't get you to the build out that you need to have uh you know have the successful networks uh for the future and able to deal with pandemics such as this and and, and telework that's not only going to be today but growing forward i appreciate it. it's a little like i said it's a little early to to declare victory in any sense of the imagination in terms of our network status i'm really appreciative where things are and how much um, investment has gone in and, and to build, build the capabilities and the capacity that the United States has today for broadband and other services by multiple technologies. And you highlighted satellite and others and very impressive on where we are today. But it's going to take more. And that means more regulations that have been, you know, that are antiquated and no longer make any sense need to be stripped away uh, from that marketplace. And that's, uh, you know, one of my highest priorities. I assume one of the things that you've noticed uh, it's been in the press a fair bit is that uh, Europe 
has struggled in a number of regards. They've asked uh, some of the major content uh, providers like Netflix and others to change from uh, high def down to standard definition. Although I believe they haven't changed their charging mechanisms associated <laughs> with that. But nevertheless, as a way of trying to protect the network, we have not seen that here in the United States. And uh, lots of articles talking about how extraordinarily robust the broadband networks uh, have been here in the United States, even with both a much higher peak, but also a change in the peak times as well. Are you feeling better about our net neutrality rules, for example, which have encouraged some of that investment as compared to Europe? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very appreciative that we struck down the net neutrality rules, which I never thought were grounded in either statute or practice. And so I'm very pleased that we, you know, and I, I went internationally after they were adopted in the Wheeler administration and said, please don't follow us. It's gonna, I remember know, that very well. <laughs> a couple of years, a couple of years, this is going to change and you're going to be stuck uh, in, a, in, a, in a bad situation, in, in, in a rut. And I've since met with them, a number of those regulators again, and they go, oh, you were so right which doesn't happen in my world that often. I, <laughs> certainly not in my household. Uh, they admitted that they that I was so right um, on that point. And so, yes, I, I I'm very pleased on where, where things are in the United States. And I'm not surprised where things are in Europe or or I broader sense in terms of where the UK is, depending on the on the boundaries you design, you know, geopolitical lines these days. But I'm not surprised um, because it matches up with where my conversations uh, have been and, and why I would bring back those arguments um, to, to the United States and say, don't do this, don't follow this course that they have in, in past instances. And certainly if they're going to go down the net neutrality route, whether you know, before or after us, do not follow that course of action. And downgrading services because their network can't handle it is not the experience we're having in the United States today. Things have certainly changed. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves or, or boast too much, but the peaks you spoke of are not nowhere close uh, to 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 the highest of what the capacity can handle, and the timing is is different, and location is different where the peaks are happening, and that's all something that the network has, you know, the the providers have invested private sector dollars to make happen, um, and so I'm so appreciative of what they've done. We hopefully have been a little bit of help to that process, but going forward, I'm going to continue to go internationally. We'll continue to be at those conferences <laughs> and try to convince them to to change their course of action. Yeah, we're just hopeful we'll be able to have some of those conferences uh, in the near future. It's, uh, it's a little uncertain. We've got a, a yeah. WTSA, World Telecommunication Standardization Assembly, coming up in November in Hyderabad, India, as the next major uh, international such meeting. And uh, we're all keeping our fingers crossed that that will happen. You've been very outspoken speaking about ITU on a number of things, including very recently you've talked about a number of of things, and particularly with regard to spectrum-related. Uh, for those listeners who don't know, the International Telecommunication Union is a part of the United Nations. It's based in Geneva. It is the uh, a global entity of which member all countries basically belong to. And one of its primary responsibilities is to help the world figure out how to use spectrum on the theory that spectrum does not uh, recognize national boundaries and the like. And particularly important with regard to satellites, but also an allocation just generally uh, of spectrum. Uh, you've been quite critical about a number of the approaches that the ITU has taken, slowness as well as actual decisions. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about your views about ITU and perhaps ITU reform. Absolutely. For those 
that believe in the ITU, and, and I am one that would like an ITU that fully functional. Uh, you highlighted a couple of different instances that I, I've raised. I believe its primary function is spectrum harmonization on a global basis. We want to reduce the costs of offering service by providers and equipment manufacturers and users by, you know, it, it's harmonization is a sound policy and should be pursued. What, the difficulty has been that we've allowed the ITU to, to segregate out to other purposes and add to their mission um, because they see other needs or they think that other organizations aren't fulfilling the obligations. And I, I appreciate that, but mission creep tends to mean that you, you lose focus of what you're supposed to do, what your primary mission is, that's problematic. And two, I think that my experience is someone, and there, there are definitely many, I'm not the only, but there are uh, folks from, from the United States and elsewhere who have attended, the, I've been part of the last two uh, WRC, World Radio Communication Conferences, and there was definitely an anti-American approach uh, to policymaking. Uh, you know, where we were pursuing sound policy on behalf of the world, uh, it was being uh, rejected for geopolitical reasons or slowed. Um, you saw that in Egypt, you know, most basic conversations were delayed to the end. I intentionally didn't go to the last week of the conference of the four, four and a half, um, because I thought we could, you know, the last week is when the, the deals are made. But when I got there, it was four days in before even people were having conversations on figuring out how to get, you know, out of the conference. And that, that to me suggests, you know, it's not, not suggests, it's stronger than that. That to me shows that the, that the WRC is not working and the ITU has serious problems that need to be rectified. I believe that an ITU is important, but if it is not going to uh, fix itself, if the members are not willing to uh, address its problems, then we need to look at other alternatives. I've suggested something of a spectrum G7, and I don't mean following the same countries of G7, but I think there are probably six or seven countries in the world that, that are allies of the United States that can follow and agree on spectrum policy um, that will set the course for equipment manufacturing uh, and basically set the standards for the rest of the world. Um, right now, we're being led by different regions at, at WRC that, that are, you know, fighting within themselves. You saw this, you know, in particular European countries where one particular, you know, for anti-competitive reasons, we're blocking the United States and the rest of the globe on, on, on advancement of spectrum policy. And even its own region didn't agree, but they had already, you know, given a blood oath they were going to follow that path. And so that's incredibly problematic. It's no longer sustainable. And I, and I applaud this president who's been outspoken and say, we expect more out of international, our international organizations, and we expect them not to be anti-American in their approach. Uh, and those two messages are what I've been carrying forward. Uh, and I appreciate that this administration is focused on that. And we'll see if it carries over to the ITU and what happens at WRC 23. So Commissioner, internationally, one of the major issues, of course, really has focused on China. And this has been true now for a number of years. A lot of the focus, as you point out, at WRCs is over spectrum-related issues, uh, but also uh, they have been very active with regard to 5G on the equipment manufacturing side with Huawei, ZTE, and the like. And this has obviously uh, created a whole host of issues, both here in the United States and in Europe and elsewhere. One of the recent developments has been that this administration uh, issued an executive order reforming what was uh, often colloquially referred to as Team Telecom, which 
for those of our listeners who don't know about Team Telecom, is a group of uh, federal agencies that are nationally defense-oriented that would review transactions by foreign investors to see if there are national security-related issues and provide input to the FCC about transactions and the like. Uh, perhaps you could talk to us a little bit about uh, your views on this new executive order, how it might change things, and in particular, uh, how your views are about the important balance between get, encouraging foreign investment in the United States with regard to telecom and other matters, which everyone recognizes is important, while at the same time doing equally, if not more important, of protecting the United States from foreign uh, entities that would do us harm. Well, let me start generally and just talk about the race issue of China. I've had, you know, made money, many comments about the issue uh, and their role and their their practices in terms of telecommunications, uh, both at the ITU and elsewhere, that they have, you know, attempted to to expand their reach, both uh, I would say both legally and also with very skeptical and questionable uh, attempts and, and moves. Um, over the many years. And so that's incredibly problematic, and I've raised those issues. And I think as a nation, we're all trying to address what's the impact of China and its its role as a world economy, but also its impact on U.S. national security, uh, its impact on global uh, geopolitical balances. And so we're trying to address all those issues. But at the point, your conversation and your question got into the issue of team telecom, something I've worked on extensively the reform for quite a quite a amount of time, and I'm so pleased that the new executive order has been released. It's something I worked with them on uh, for a number of years now. Uh, it's not been an easy process, but I appreciate where we've landed because I think it both addresses the need to have a more formal structure and provide certainty to those you know investors that want to come and in, in invest in the United States, but also properly protecting our national security. It's finding that important balance, and I think it does that. The old structure provided too much. Uh, there wasn't a structure to it, and the informality of it allowed things to, to carry on for way too long. Uh, uncertainty of who to talk to within the administration to get a decision. And, and the applications would just sit there for months or years at a time. That's problem. That, that, that was something that was unnecessary and needed to be fixed. And so I'm so appreciative for that. But on the flip side, it is how do we address that countries are going to try and invest in the United States and have sought access or have access today and are made, you know, available and have the opportunity to use uh, that access for nefarious purposes. And so I think Team Telecom sets that structure up and will allow us to get the views of the administration more formally, quicker, and allow us to take action if necessary from the FCC's independent role. Uh, is it fair to say that uh, your view of that is that the FCC is uh, still maybe even more welcoming of foreign investment in the United States as long as it's coming in from countries and organizations that are uh, sufficiently friendly to the U.S.? Well, I, I, um, I'm a free trader by heart and support investing in the United States. The United States has been a fairly open marketplace for telecommunications services for a long while. Our media a little bit less so, but others, you know, generally we've been very open. Uh, others have not, and they've used a couple of different uh, old rules and, and, and acknowledgements in our statute or in, in, in our FCC rules to try and highlight problems that we've had. So I appreciate that over the time we've modified those to, to make 
who you're you know, it is open. And it's not just friendly countries. It's those that are um, that, that don't seek to cause national security concerns. And those that don't raise to that level, I think we should be very open because the flip side of that is for every time that we're open or any having a very open structure means that U.S. investors going internationally can invest without having the same burdens, without having the same the rigmarole that you find in certain countries such as China, where if you, you have to have certain structures just to be able to operate in their nation. And that, that's, that's what we shouldn't have. We shouldn't have that, that dichotomy between the two. And we work really hard to make sure that national security of the United States is not threatened by uh, it, foreign investment. Um, foreign investment overall is a positive for the United States. Trade is good for the United States. Terrific. Before going to our last set of questions, which have to do with satellites, Kathy, do you have questions for the commissioner? I was just going to ask a follow-up on that, Commissioner, is how do you see that working procedurally? You guys have an open rulemaking proceeding? Well, I envision that we will, um, we have an open NPRM, and I envision that we'll have to take action to implement that in the very near future, uh, and I look forward to doing so. You know, and, and I've asked the chairman, and I think we're going to see that uh, relatively soon uh, to, to execute and implement the, the new executive order and how those views are going to be reflected in our in our rulemaking. So that, that should be very positive uh, for us uh, going forward. And, and the, the benefit of those, the benefit of that action is going to accumulate to the United States uh, uh, citizens. Terrific. Maybe lastly, looking at satellites, we talked a little bit about that at the very beginning. I think part of the importance of satellites has really been underscored during this pandemic People have been working so much from home and particularly in rural areas of the United States and globally. We had a recent bankruptcy filing made by OneWeb, which is one of the leading satellite new satellite ventures and the like. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your views about the importance of satellites uh, generally and uh, you know, what you think their role is uh, going forward. Well, I'm a strong advocate supporter of satellite services. I've been working on satellite policy for 20 some odd years. And so I see the benefits from what satellites can bring uh, to the United States and to its citizens and to the world at large. Uh, so I pre I'm appreciative of all of that. I think that there are a lot of new applications and new services that may come forward from satellites. I think some of them will succeed and more than likely a number of them will fail. Um, you know, we have a dozen or 15 different applications, and you know, it's hard to see, you know, all 15 or 20 working out. To have two or three strong ones is probably more realistic for someone who's lived through a number of bankruptcies and watched the bankruptcies in the past and, and lived through the regulatory process in the past. It wouldn't surprise me to see only a handful make it. Uh, we'll just see if that's where the, the market demand goes. But I think what it can bring in terms of, you know, broadband to unserved populations where the cost can be so much cheaper, incredibly beneficial to 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 things that you know that we can't do through wireline or even in some cases terrestrial wireless situations. So I'm very appreciative of what satellite can bring. There, there's certainly still going to be some new economic difficulties going forward. Cash is not going to be as cheap as it once was, uh, but pre-COVID. Um, and I, I anticipate we're going to have seen a lot more difficulties uh, going forward, and not all plans will, will, will succeed. And we'll just have to see what that means uh, going forward 
I mean, we have a big over debris item on this month for consideration. Uh, some of that becomes less necessary as if there are fewer applicants that actually do launch. Uh, so I don't mean to be flippant about that, but it's just true. And we'll just have to see what the market can bear on the new market is different than the last market. I was struck you recently tweeted about space tugboats and the like repairing satellites and so forth. I assume you were sort of interested in to see that, among other things, Intelsat was recently able to get some more fuel for its existing satellites through uh, a satellite docking thing, which I think was a first. I assume that's the sort of thing you're thinking about. Absolutely. I, I really I thought that was a very in, innovative approach to to extending the life of a satellite for, you know, I think it was five years. Really incredibly, um, you know, change of, of policy. Most people talk about satellites and you put them up there and you can't do anything with them after the launch. And we may be moving to a new world where you can change out all the pieces. And I, I use the word glitch. Um, but maybe it's a malfunction or something to that nature, or maybe even upgrading or changing what it does uh, going forward. And so that's a it's a really we have you know we're changing the dynamic. The market is changing the dynamic. The, the innovators are changing the dynamic of what satellites can bring and what new satellite services will look like. Well, we want to thank you very very much for taking the time to chat with us about a, a wide range of issues. As always, you've been extraordinarily accommodating and interesting and informative. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. We know how difficult it is to do these types of things in, in any environment, particularly this one with uh, doing it from home, with children around, uh, with all the pressures of an upcoming meeting and the like. So thank you very much for spending some time with us at, uh, at Wiley Connected. We really appreciate it. So thank you, you so much. And your family stay well. Do the same. Everyone stay well. Thank you so very much and look forward to, uh, to the next one. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to WileyConnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during our podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.